Thank you. We're here today to hear from your heart. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Are you guys ready for this? I've been excited for this. My, my, my name has been next to this week for a long time. We have a document with, uh, the next, with all the weeks planned out, and about a year ago, I put my name on this one. So I'm excited to teach this one. But it's, it's an interesting topic, the triumphal entry. You maybe have been to a Palm Sunday service where they had palm branches, and they, what do they yell? Hosanna, Hosanna, that's right. I remember when I was a kid one time, I was in um, New Mexico, and I went with a cousin to her church, and I um, was used to church at Redstone Church of Carbondale, and then I'd go to my grandmother's church, First Baptist Church of Clovis, and I went with my cousin, and it was a completely different kind of church, and there was a lot of dancing, and um, dancing I didn't know you could do, um, not in church, just physically. I mean, it was pretty incredible. And at one point, I was sitting on the end of the aisle, and then someone came by and, and put a palm branch in my hand and said, follow me. And for the next half an hour, I got a workout as I just circled the church, waving this thing, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the preacher, preacher would stop, and he would dance, and then I guess I was supposed to, I was, I was in like a middle schooler. It was a very interesting day. Uh, but Palm Sunday, maybe you've had some experiences with, uh, with some palm branches and all different kinds of denominations. The, the body of Jesus, uh, his church is beautiful and how, how vast and different it is. Well, I'm going to read today from Luke 19, and then we're going to get to teaching this. So Jesus um, has left Jericho. That's where he was with Zacchaeus. You guys remember that many weeks ago. As I read this, um, in your mind, just see the events unfolding, Okay. After Jesus taught, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem, and this is going to be his final weeks on earth, okay? As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he set two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just simply tell them the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying our colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their coats and cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now that's it. Now you're probably wondering what about that is so, so interesting. Because it's pretty open and shut, right? He gets on a donkey and he rides it towards Jerusalem and people start saying things to him. That's, that's kind of it. And if you've been to a Palm Sunday, it's, it's a celebration. Jesus, the Messiah, the Chosen One, Hosanna. It's kind of like saying hallelujah. But I want to say, I want to I bring something before you today. And, and you, you can be offended and disagree with me. That is absolutely fine. But we look at this through a Jewish context, through eyes of the people who were watching what was happening. It is not open and shut at all. There is high drama in this. This is, this is unfolding before these people, and there is so many things going on all at once. This moment is pregnant with drama. I mean, it is just ready to pop, and it will pop in, in, a, in a little bit. He's traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. That's a holy holiday in a holy city. Now, Jerusalem, it is one of the religious centers. It is the center for three different major religions. And did you know it's overwhelming to some people when they get to Jerusalem? There's actually something called Jerusalem Syndrome. 
a psychological thing that happens to some people, and there's an institute there that treats between 50 and 100 people a year, where they get there and they psychologically just break down. And there's actually a staff of people there that help people every year who declare themselves the Messiah when they get to Jerusalem. They just get to Jerusalem, they're overwhelmed, and they go, it's me. I'm the Messiah. Like, I don't care how arrogant you think your husband is, until he declares himself the Messiah, you're good, okay? But they have, they have a staff there. Listen, people, Messiah's complex have created an industry in Jerusalem, they're just waiting for it. And I was reading that the tour guides have different little signs they watch for. From everything from just having to cleanse everything and cleanse, just little signs that lead to the final declaration of, I have come! <laughs> and then they swiftly put you in the institute. So Jerusalem is this powerful city. It's the city King David made the capital. And you cannot read the Bible and escape it. People were flocking to Jerusalem during this time. Um, many scores of people would be on the road. Jesus is traveling from Jericho to Bethany, Bethphage, and um, then to Jerusalem. And that road right there, you can still walk it. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people walking that road with Jesus. Pilgrims would just travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's joined by many people. Josephus, there was a big census of an ancient historian who, um, based on the number of lambs used, it's estimated there was hundreds of thousands of people in this city at this time, and Rome knew it, and Rome would bring in their legions just in case someone declared the Messiah. This, religiously, it was just a melting, boiling pot ready to go up because that's the time we're waiting. Is the Messiah going to come? Is he going to come? And so Rome was ready because a lot, a lot of the revolts happened during that time. Now, Passover is an eight-day celebration marking the emancipation of the Israelites from slavery in Israel. They called it Pesach, which means the Passover, because God passed over the Hebrew households who had the blood of the lamb on their door. They had to sacrifice the Korba Pesach, that's the Passover lamb. It was a male lamb, one year old, without blemish. And they would slay it on the Passover. Now, selection day was four days before Passover, and each family would go and select their lamb. And they would spend the next four days kind of getting accustomed to it, because so the sacrifice was a little more personal, but also inspecting it to make sure it was blameless. You don't want to get your lamb home and find out you got a lemon. You know, you, you want to make sure you got the right one for this thing. So there is much anticipation here. The final two days of Passover um, have to do with the coming redemption of Messiah. A lot of Passover is about what God had done to, to emancipate them from Egypt, but as it ends, especially the final day, they focus on Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is where it talks about who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. And so the Passover has many themes of God's salvation from the past and God's coming salvation in the future. There's, there's so much anticipation about the Messiah revealing himself during the Passover. And in fact, they would even leave the door open of the temple during Passover on the east side in case the Messiah decided to come back to the temple. Like everybody's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a big moment. So we have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem like many pilgrims. And many people are waiting for him to arrive. He's, he's, he's working on three years of ministry now. We read in John 11, we get an insight into what's happening in Jerusalem. In John 11, it says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem, out of the country, these are the pilgrims, for the Passover. They were asking for Jesus. They were saying to one another as they stood at the temple, What do you think? That he will, do you think he'll come to the feast? Now why are they asking this? Everybody's buzzing about this Jesus guy. He's three years into his ministry. Why are they asking this? 
Well, because look at what he's been doing. They know his miracles. They've heard of his miracles. Maybe they've seen him teach. He's been all over the countryside. There's no one in Israel who has not at least heard of who he is. Everything is spreading. His fame is at its peak with the people and at its low point with the religious leaders who want him dead. They're thinking if he travels to Jerusalem, he may declare himself Messiah. Do you think he'll come? It says, it says they're at the door of the temple asking, do you think he'll come? You think he's going to show up? Because if he does, oh, it could be. It could be the one we've been waiting for. So that's the drama that's building. And let's go back and pause. We have to go back to where Jesus was in Jericho. It's important to trace this, this journey. He's in Jericho. Charlie preached on this before Easter. And it's about 13 to 15 miles from Bethany. And he, again, he was joined by many many pilgrims. Now he travels to Bethany, which is known as the House of Misery. That's what it means. It's where the Christian band House of Pain got their name. And it's a city, this, this Bethany House of Misery, where they think that there was a, was it a, was it a, like a, a place of comfort for people? What, what is it about this? But when he gets there, the city and the area are buzzing. You want to know why? What happened to Bethany? Lazarus. Remember Lazarus was dead and Jesus shows up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man walks out with the death rags upon him. And people, are, we're going to read in a minute, are showing up to see him and to see Jesus. They're thinking, surely this is him. They're gathering and flocking to where he is. Then he gets to Bethphage and we see he gets on a donkey. And I love what it says here. Go ask for a donkey. Go get a donkey. Don't ask. And if they say, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it. Now I've tried this in my life. There was a nice car. A night, and they go, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. And, um, you know, they're just, people aren't as biblical now as they used to be because they didn't really let me take, yeah. He gets on this donkey. Now, we have to ask why. He doesn't do anything by accident. Why, why is he getting on a donkey? Do has he ever ridden a donkey before? Maybe, like, since he was in Mary's tummy? Anybody know? We have no recollection of this. There's nothing about him riding a donkey. He's walked everywhere, hundreds of miles all around the Sea of Galilee. He has walked. His feet are cracked. They are, he has walked everywhere. But right now, his last under a mile to Jerusalem, he asks for a donkey. Why now? Why on the outskirts of Jerusalem? He's going to paint a very clear picture he is about to declare himself Messiah in simply what he does. Now remember the people of this time, they were raised on the Torah and the Tanakh. The children would learn to read from the Old Testament. They wouldn't call it the Old Testament. They would learn to read from the Torah. They had much of it memorized, and they especially knew the Messianic prophecies. They knew these things. It was part of their, their culture. And so when Jesus gets on a donkey and starts riding into Jerusalem for Passover... Light bulbs went off and fires ignited in hearts as they remembered Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here he comes, Jerusalem. Your Messiah is coming, riding on a foal of a donkey. When he got that donkey in Bethphage and he got upon it, there might as well have been a banner over his head as he began this final journey. Again, in their culture, in their time, there's more going on than we see. I have to add one more thing in here that, that is easy to gloss over. And we wouldn't even know it other than culturally from their time. Um, back in their day, embedded in the Old Testament writings and even in their culture, there's, a, there's something that's important about understanding the direction of east. Okay? Now, the direction east was thought to be the, the direction of life. 
of divine life, God's direction, God's life. There are countless verses and references that discuss this, and I don't have time to go. It would be like a seminar to go into all the, the Old Testament dealings with, with East and what that means, but here's a few of the indications about tabernacle doors and orientations. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, the first time it came into Jerusalem, came from the East, and they, that, they welcomed that in there with life. Solomon built his temple, and there's an implication there that when the temple was completed, God's spirit came from the East. Ezekiel's vision, God's presence leaves and goes to the East, where it resided until it came back later, it says, from the East. Isaiah talks about preparing a way for the Lord in the desert, which was east of Jerusalem. Jewish tradition always, like I said, leaves the door open in case the Messiah comes, the eastern door from the east. Zechariah promises or prophesies the Messiah would stand on the Mount Olives east of Jerusalem, and there he would judge the people. And because of this, there's an ancient burial ground that goes back to the time of David even. They don't know how old, how old and how far it goes down. It's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Why would the ancient Hebrews bury, ask to be buried there? So when the Lord comes back, they can be first in line. Like they're saving their spot. Like when he comes back, I, I, I want to be right there when he comes down. From the, okay, and, and here, this is for free. And this is, um, this is interesting, this next one. When Jesus is resurrected, he goes out east to the Mount of Olives. And he's on top of it, and then he ascends in front of his disciples. He goes up in, in the clouds, right? And an angel says to him, says to the disciples, in the same way he left, he will return. And people are wondering, okay, yes, in the same way, he'll return from the sky, but is also the same way, the same direction. Like, will he descend from the east? Will, there's all this debate and these talks. People love to talk about this stuff. And as you can tell, I kind of I like it. I kind of like to see what God's, what, what's happening here. But the direction east means something. And so when Jesus, listen, when he comes from the east, he's saying even more things because there's a, there's a statement one rabbi said, had Jesus come to Jerusalem on a war horse with a thousand soldiers from the west, they wouldn't have given him any messianic thought at all. Romans come from the west, pagans come from the west, but he rode a donkey in from the east and you add that in. He wasn't fulfilling one prophecy. He is coming in the way of the Messiah would come in many different ways. Again, Jesus often, and we see this all throughout Luke, he declares himself without saying it. So here's Jesus, from Jericho to Bethany to Bethphage, coming down the mountain of Olives towards Jerusalem on a donkey. And at this point, the people break forth in spontaneous and impassioned celebration. And it never really made sense, kind of, before I thought through, before I looked at all this. Why did they just decide then? What is it about then? He's on a donkey and now he gets the song? Now, he, now we chant about him? What was it about that moment that got this spontaneous reaction? Why are they so, so eager to declare him Messiah? Do you see from their cultural point of view what they're seeing? They're watching prophecy unfold before them. In their cultural minds, they're seeing things happen. Like, of course, of course. And so we begin to see why they begin to say these things. We, he has with him the disciples who've been with him for three years, seeing all the miracles. They've traveled the roads. They've had the good times, the hard times. Then there's those um, on the larger crowd that were orbiting around him. Maybe they didn't see him do everything, but they were with him for a little while. And then there's those pilgrims who just heard about him. And the, the, the frenzy starts, and the crowd begins to, to chant these things, and he's, he's leaving Bethphage toward Jerusalem with all these people, all these multiples of crowds, and, and all the gospels tell us about who all was there. 
In fact, um, John 12 tells this, a large crowd of Jews that learned that Jesus was there, they came out, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. For this reason, the people went out to meet him because they heard he had performed a sign. So we have people, at, we have the pilgrimage going toward Jerusalem, and we have to have, for the first time ever maybe, a pilgrimage leaving Jerusalem, going out to see this Jesus. People are gathering to go see Jesus and Lazarus. They're in the same place. And they all kind of gather in this place. He gets on the donkey and they, they erupt. They proclaim Hosanna. Now what, what does this word Hosanna mean? What, what does it mean? The gospels say these things. John says that they yell this. Hosanna, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And it strikes me as we see the, the king thing we're gonna see in the, what the gospels paint that people were saying, the king of Israel, um, that they declared him king of Israel, king of the Jews. And, and what did the Romans paste above Jesus' cross? A sign saying, king of the Jews. Do you know that I don't believe they did that to mock him? I believe they did that as a message to say, this is what we do to your kings. Remember when you thought <laughs> that this guy was king of the Jews and you said it and you, you proclaimed that? Well, look, what, look at him now. Just merciless. Look at your king of the Jews. Luke says this, they yelled, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of David. Matthew, Hosanna to the son of David. There's a lot of King and David references here. And you put those together and you see that they're looking for the Messiah, the king who is coming the, um, in the lineage of David and the way of David, one of military might who would gather the nation together and make them great again. He's headed to the capital. Is this the one? The king from the line of David who will make us like it was in David's time. And as they yell Hosanna, you know, we take this kind of in our, in our terms to mean if you've yelled it ever, you've probably kind of said it like hallelujah. Hosanna! Like hallelujah! But the word is a very interesting word and its roots go back actually into the Old Testament. Psalm 118 has it. Um, it's two words, one that means to save or deliver and the other that means to beg or plead. And so you put these together and it means we beg you to save us or deliver us, please. And Psalm 118 verse 25 actually copies the words that they are saying, Lord, save us. Lord, save us, deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it would seem that they're crying out to this Messiah for salvation. And that's how we take it. People who are declaring Jesus the Messiah who's come to save us. But if you'll allow me to go deeper into the history and context, there's a lot more happening here in the culture of this word Hosanna. See, it had, it had evolved over the last, especially 200 years, and the palm branch in the minds of the Hebrews. See, almost two centuries before this, the Jewish people were under the thumb of another oppressive government, one that would not let them worship in their temple. And a man by the name of Judas Maccabee led a revolt that threw off the oppressors, that captured the city, and they marched into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. And listen to this from 1 Maccabees 1351, almost two centuries before Jesus. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews, entered, the Jews entered with praise and palm branches because the great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. See, the palm branch was somewhat of a symbol of resistance and freedom from the oppressed. There was that in their cultural context that when I wave this, I'm not just saying, praise you, the Messiah, save me. Not like we went on Palm Sunday. You are Jesus, you are Messiah. It's save us from our oppressors. It's, it's a politicized palm branch. 
They're saying something by waving it. So they're not saying, Messiah, Messiah, save me, die for my sins. None of that. They don't know any of that. They're saying, Messiah, the king has come. Save us from the oppressors. Hosanna had come to be somewhat of a political term. that You might as well have yelled, save us from the Romans. They viewed the Romans like the Maccabees viewed the, uh, their time, and they were, they were wanting and longing for the same thing. And in fact, one, one historian said, if you were to go to a Roman garrison and start yelling Hosanna at them, at best, they would rough you up. At best, they would just beat you up a little bit. It was not just a, a Lord save us statement. They're saying something by saying Hosanna and waving the palm branches. So, so what we know on Christian Palm Sunday, as we declare Jesus as Lord, we are not saying these things. And I want to just go ahead and say we can have Palm Sunday and, and not take part in, in all the political throw off the oppressor stuff. Because that's not really our context, is it? No. We can say Lord save us, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. What strikes me most of all is that this crowd who are yelling Hosanna, not even a week from, or a little more than a week from now, would be chanting something very different at Jesus. You see these very lips of some of these people who were yelling Hosanna, Hosanna, would soon be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So the question is, how do you get from Hosanna to crucify him? How could they turn on him? They believed he was the Messiah, but they would come to find that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were hoping he would be. He wasn't going to defeat Rome. He wasn't there to throw off the Roman garrison. See, they believed the Messiah in the, in the lineage of David would come with military might, restore their capital, restore them to all they are. He would be a conquering Messiah, a conquering Messiah, ready to make wholesale changes. And when he rode into town on a donkey from the east, surely this is the Messiah. It's the Passover. Surely this is the one. Surely, surely, get ready to reign again. Surely. But Jesus refused to fulfill their expectations. They wanted a conquering Messiah. Listen, he was going to do something far larger than conquer Rome. He was going to conquer sin and death. His mission was much larger than throwing off the oppression of a government. It was throwing off the oppression of sin. Within the next week, these people who were declaring him conquering Messiah would see him wearing chains with ripped robes. And they would have to think, conquering messiahs don't wear chains. They would see this Messiah that they thought was the conquering Messiah, whipped and beaten, and, and conquering Messiahs, they don't get tortured, do they? This man is obviously not who we thought he was. And, and I have to say this, the moment that Jesus became obvious that Jesus was not the one to throw off Roman rule, for many people in that time, they didn't want anything to do with him as Messiah. That's what they thought and wanted Messiah to do to throw off the rule. Jesus was not who they had hoped and, th and they were right about that. They were waiting for a conquering Messiah to come in God's power and God's might to punish the pagan armies, to restore the nation to greatness, to bring happiness. They were looking for a Messiah and guess what? Jesus is that Messiah, but not yet. Did you catch it? 
He is the conquering Messiah, but, but not yet. He will come again. He will come from the sky with a legion with him. And he won't come in swaddling clothes. He'll come bathed in fire. He won't come with the, a cry of a baby. He'll come with a crack and the sound of a trumpet. He is coming back as conquering Messiah. Not as a baby, but as a divine king. But before he comes as a conquering Messiah, he came as a saving, suffering Messiah. Or as Isaiah would put it, he came as the suffering servant. Someday he will rend the sky, but at Passover, it's Jesus who will be torn. He will lay down his life, lay down his crowns to die for the sins of those people. They wanted a conquering Messiah, but he didn't cooperate because his mission was to come as a saving Messiah. So when they, say, when they yelled and chanted, Hosanna, save us, they had it right. He had come to save them. But he had not come in the way that they had wanted him to, be, to save them. So how does this apply to us? That's the question. How does this even apply to us? You know, I, I, I still fear, I fear that many of us still come to Jesus as a conquering Messiah. We still long for him to be that conquering Messiah. Now here in the West, we don't want him to be a military force. You know, we're not really needing a military force to, to, to save our land. But we are looking for a, a Messiah to save our hide. See, many of us have come to believe that Jesus died so that we can get out of financial debt, not, not spiritual debt. Jesus has been sold in, in some places here in the West as a means to an end to get a happy life. Some preach that if you believe in Jesus that um, you won't get sick, you won't suffer, you won't grieve. And there are scores of churches built on the premise that by simply believing in Jesus, you will have prosperity. Many in our culture are waving their hands and palm branches declaring Hosanna to a Jesus that they hope makes them successful and happy. I don't find that Jesus on the back of a donkey. He actually pulled his disciples apart away at one point as he was discipling them and he said, you know what guys? In this life you will have trouble. He said, the son of man, I have no place to lie on my head. He wasn't prosperous. What kind of life did he model for us? Now, perhaps Jesus will move in your life and pay off your debt and, 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 and heal your disease and save your company and give you nice things and protect us from harm. But we, and listen, we do pray for that daily, don't we? And that's, a, we pray for Jesus. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me in this relationship that is just breaking. Help my heart sustain here. Help me in this, in this sickness. Help us. We pray and we ask him this. And we believe that he does give healing and wisdom. But the primary mission of Jesus was as saving Messiah. It was not our success or our happiness. He came here to tear the veil between the salvation of God and the sin of humanity. He came to make a path for us to the almighty God. For all that would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. He came to be tortured and beaten and though he could stop it at any moment, be executed, buried, and risen from the dead so that we could have life. He is a conquering Messiah in the way that he conquered sin and death, but not in the way that they had hoped. And perhaps some of us have been wondering why that, that Jesus doesn't seem to be working out like we thought he would in our Christian life. Like this Christian thing isn't, it doesn't work like I kind of hoped it would. We all have this, we all, we all wonder these things sometimes when bad things happen. 
when hurts happen? When, where, where is Jesus supposed to be? Where is Jesus in this? And perhaps he's not coming through like we had hoped, but perhaps we've put our faith in a success savior, not a saving Messiah. Perhaps we yelled Hosanna to a savior we thought had come to make us happy, when in fact we have a savior who came to make us whole. Perhaps we enjoy that he laid down his life for us, but we miss the part where he called us to lay down our lives for him. I can't be too quick to judge any of these people who, who said this because I have at times longed for, and don't we all, for the success conquering Messiah. We've all prayed and asked God, help me be more happy, be more successful. It happens today just like it happened back then. Praising Jesus and asking him to come join my agenda and help me be successful. It's amazing to see that in the coming weeks, even his disciples will be shocked by what happens to him. And in fact, we'll see that some of the disciples try to push him into becoming this conquering Messiah. A lot of people misunderstood who he was, what he was about and who he was about. So we have Jesus on this donkey fulfilling prophecy, journeying toward Jerusalem, while people are declaring, Hosanna! Hosanna is the king of Israel who came and who's going to throw off the, the Roman rule, our conquering Messiah, Hosanna. How does he respond to this? And I'm struck with it. See, as the procession goes down the outskirts of Bethphage and goes... Um, down the side of the Mount of Olives, he gets a glimpse, at, he comes to a place where he can overlook Jerusalem. And he stops the procession. His eyes and heart take in the city as his ears take in the chants of the people around him. And he weeps. He begins to cry. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city he wept over it and said, if you, if you'd only know that this day would bring you peace. But it's hidden from you. The days will come when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children with your walls because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. He weeps. If you had only known that this day brought you peace, but you did not recognize it. The Greek word here for Jesus is crying is not quiet tears. It's, 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 it's open weeping. It's the word used oftentimes in Luke when there is a mourning procession, a burial procession, when it's loud and, and he, he's breaking down. He's sobbing. I wonder what those people thought as they watched him, their conquering Messiah, weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus, with timeless insight from the Spirit, heard the cries of those anointing him, but saw what would happen and become of them due to their unbelief. And it broke him. It broke him. Jerusalem, his people, and they missed it. They missed him. It crushed him. Jesus weeps because the people who would want him become one thing, but he had been called to be another. He was the Messiah that they needed, but he was not the Messiah that they wanted. This is the second time Jesus cried on this road, on this stretch of road. Earlier in Bethany, when his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus shows up, and he shows up in everybody's mourning. 
He sees Mary and Martha, and they're just crushed and broken. They're crying. And both women declare him Messiah. They knew him for who he was, and he knew them. He sees their heartbreak, and in John eleven thirty five, 35, it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But the weeping he does here in John 11 for Lazarus and his friends is a quiet weeping of compassion. It's a different word. He quietly reaps out of compassion for those that he loves who are going through hardship. While in Luke 19, less than a mile away, he sobs, not out of compassion for his friends, but out of sadness for those who would perish without knowing him. He cried over both, those close to him and those far from him. And I just want to just pull aside and say, how does Jesus cry for you? Sit that. There's quiet tears of compassion as he sits there in the doctor's office with you. Someone he, who knows him and loves him. Is it the t- quiet tears of compassion as he sits with you as relationships are crumbling, life is falling, whatever it may be in your life? Or for others, does he weep tears of sadness for those who did not know him, who missed it? He cries for his friends and he cries for those far. You see, the triumphal entry does this. It confronts us with a question. Who do you believe Jesus is? Which Messiah are you putting your faith in? The conquering success Messiah who is supposed to help us with our our debts and our riches and and keep us from trouble and make our doctor's appointments nice and and have the government align with my ideals and keep bad things from happening and just kind of make my life happy? Is that the kind of Messiah that that uh, I'm confronted with? When times are good, they're great, we raise our hands, but when times are bad, what the disciple of a conquering Messiah says, how could you let this happen? And we've all said this at some point, like this wasn't supposed to happen. Sometimes when Christianity doesn't work, it's because we're believing in a Messiah who has not yet come. The conquering Messiah will return. The King Jesus, he will return. But his first coming was of a humble servant who healed and spoke and preached and lived purely. And that's that saving Messiah who did all these things. He was captured and tortured and all all of this. And the heart cry of someone who wants the saving Messiah says, I need you. My soul and my spirit need you. Today, I want you to take a quick look at your faith and, and stop and say, who is my faith in The triumphal entry asks us, do we believe that he's this conquering Messiah, in which case he will not live up to those expectations in your heart? Or was he the saving Messiah who came to give you life and bring you to life, forgive your past, peace and power in your present, and hope in your future? Which Messiah would you say that you are yelling Hosanna to? And one more piece of evidence that that is easy to miss. I said earlier, Jesus often declares who he was, not by what he said, but by what he does. There are a few coincidences with with Jesus. So when Jesus came down the Mount of Olives and he started weeping over Jerusalem, and then he entered Jerusalem, do you know what day it was? What day did Jesus enter Jerusalem? It was four days from Passover. It was Lamb Selection Day. 
Jesus rode into town declaring, here I am, pick me, I am the lamb. All those families out there picking out their lamb for their blemishes and he is the, he is the blameless lamb arriving on lamb selection day, here I am, pick me. The saving Messiah. And just like those lambs, he too would be sacrificed on Passover. He rode the donkey down the Mount of Olives, staring at his death, knowing what was coming out of love. And as we go forward in Luke, we're going to see the coming weeks, what happens, and the different things that happen. And, and, and it's, it's going to build and culminate. And my prayer is that we begin to see this journey that Jesus was on as an act of love. But today, let's pause and let the triumphal entry ask us a question. Who do you expect Jesus to be in your life? Have you been hoping that he is the successful Messiah to help you be happy and things go well? Or have you come to him as the saving Messiah, knowing that you need him for life? Jesus, we thank you that that although you could have brought legions of angels with you and conquered everything, you walked that road and you allowed yourself to be crucified. You allowed it. You chose it. We thank you that you are coming back someday to make these things right. But Jesus, I pray that right here in this place and those listening Lord, I ask that your spirit would move in an invitation that says, follow me. Follow me. I am the Messiah that you need for the forgiveness of your sins, for the peace and power in your present, and for the hope of your future. Amen. And thanks be to Jesus. He gives us joy. He gives us the fruit of the spirit. He empowers us. He moves in us and calls us to worship him. And today as you come and you take communion, I want to ask you to, to, to take it and as you look at the, the symbol of the body and the blood of Jesus, remember that he chose this for you, for freedom's sake, for love's sake. He conquered sin and death and invites you to follow him. If you're here for prayer today or you would like some prayer about these topics or anything in, in your life. We will have some, some people up front and even some people in the back. But feel free to respond to Jesus as you feel called.